Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. How you doing, Santosh? You having fun? You having a good week? I'm having I'm having a good week. I'm doing, there's a lull in COVID cases. You know how you have a lull? Like you just go lull. <laughs> All good. How about you? Are you doing okay? I am. I am. I've I've actually had a chance to pick up a few new books uh, for research purposes, Ooh. including a history of antibiotics. And one of those books about like, you'll never guess how some dude dropping a button led to the end of cancer as we know it. I love those stories. Like just... <laughs> I know there's lots of physicians who make non-textbook kind of recommendations, but maybe we could do that sometime. Share some of our favorite literature, get to know your hosts kind of episode. You heard it here first, folks. Santosh agreed to do a Reading Rainbow episode. Yeah. <laughs> but don't take my yeah. word for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would be so happy. I would be like the brown LeVar Burton. Well, wait. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I actually caught you with that, didn't I? <laughs> I heard genuine surprise in your voice. <laughs> we'll start. Off, yeah, we'll start off a reading rainbow episode by uh, Santosh. Why don't you give us a case report? A little you know, medical book report. And then I will introduce this week's topic for anybody who didn't bother to, you know, read the title. Sure. <laughs> I think that's really cool. There were a couple on my mind. Let's go back. Uh, imagine, uh, Josh, you're living in about, uh, you know, like 75 BC, right? So you're, uh, you're in Caesar era Rome. You're under the rule of Gaius Julius Caesar and maybe you're in his court or you're in the Senate and you're hanging out 
And this is a man who's had, you know, knife sharp clarity all of his life. Really bright, really smart. It's not gonna end that uh, way but, either. No, no. Well, it actually does end that way. <laughs> but you know, just sharp, sharp as a whip. You know, genius battle general, and then kind of politician, and he knows how to work everything in terms of people, mathematics, you you name it, he can do it, kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, okay. After he has been well and hale and hearty his entire life, he hasn't become super, super old. Either. How old is he? And he's uh, by this time o- over 50 years of age. Okay. Caesar was coming back to Rome from Egypt. Okay. And all of a sudden, all right, dude just like fell down. All right. He just, you know, all of a sudden he just absolutely dropped and it looked a little bit like, you know, he was maybe possessed by one of the gods or cursed by one of the gods. He just started shaking all over, okay? And then he cleared up after a bit, and he woke up, and he didn't know what had happened. And then these start to happen more and more, okay? And you continuing to have these. And they start to get accompanied by problems with sleep and memory. And they don't really, you know, deteriorate or cause problems, uh, you know, until he gets stabbed to death, which is not the fault of this pathogen. (laughs) But later on, okay, I guess, you know, even thousands of years later, we're sitting here going, hey, what happened to Julius Caesar? Why did he all of a sudden have these drop or falling episodes? So, but we're talking about a disease that can cause very late onset seizures okay so from the standpoint of things like epilepsy those epilepsy seizures should usually start in early adulthood or late childhood they should follow you throughout life it probably in ancient era rome it might have just been the death of you because you know it was too many and you'd either get stoned to death or thrown out or something like that um so it's it's not really one of those um, it doesn't really make sense that he didn't have continued, like, ongoing deterioration the way that you would like with a tumor. It wasn't so sudden of onset that it could be like a bleed. Kind of taking all of those other etiologies away, we're actually left, Josh, interestingly, with an infection that can cause stable seizures later on, or actually at any point in life, after the acquisition of this particular bug. Stable seizures. Interesting. Yeah. Well then, with that yeah. great introduction, let's get into this week's theme, one of your favorites, I know, Santosh. It's time for oh, yeah. another Around the World in 80 Plagues. Oh God, I didn't turn it down fast enough. <laughs> Oh, my poor ears. Why, Josh? (laughs) What are we talking about this week, Santosh? So in really simple terms and kind of lay terms, we're talking about poor tapeworm. Oh, yeah. Tenacious D. (laughs) Tenia solisusium. Sarcosis of the sisters. I am never going to be able to pronounce this disease. (laughs) So this is it's going to be a little weird because we're going to trade back and forth between a couple of different uh, names for the same thing, okay? The the disease-causing uh, the bug, the actual worm that we're talking about, is called Taenia, or T-A-E-N-I-A, Taenia solium, all right? Now, 
it is sometimes called in the in the phase where you find it in the brain, and we're going to talk about how it gets there in just a little bit. It's sometimes called a sister circus, a you know a little cyst, um, and so that's the disease that you actually see. You call it sister sarcosis. And I know there's nothing in there, Josh, that says the word tapeworm or taneous oleum, but what we're talking about is a life stage of taneous oleum, which is called sister sarcosis, which ultimately ends up in our tissues. And the times when it gets into the brain, it can cause things a lot like what Julius Caesar may have had. And as you mentioned earlier, it can remain asymptomatic for months to years. And even today, diagnosis can often just be made by accident when you know you get a brain image before. And I do encourage you, I have to say, the Wikipedia Google image for neurosister sarcosis is just the, the MRI image yeah. demonstrating like that's it's not necessarily classic neurosister sarcosis, but it is unmistakable. I should warn some people. I know some of you guys are going to Google doctor or whatever. You're going to see usually what goes on Google doctor is some of the most devastating cases. That's not what we often see. What we're going to describe and like the case of Julius Caesar and many others, just like you said, Josh, that might be living with neurosister sarcosis, completely asymptomatic. Very, very often, it's like a single lesion or maybe two at the periphery of the brain. You can cause seizures or it can be utterly and completely silent. So I'm going to give you a brief little bit of history as to how we got some of the names and things. But before I do that, Santosh, you said this was Julius Caesar was around 100 to 44 BC. And that means yeah. we can jump back just a teeny bit further from Rome. Oh, man. Oh, Over yeah. to Egypt, Ebers Papyrus, one of my favorites, oh, describes yeah. some of the earliest known descriptions of tapeworms, and it even talks, we've even discovered these helminths, these flatworms, these pork tapeworms, have been found mm -hmm. in the intestine and stomach of mummies. Mm. Italian paper in a ridiculously named Italian town because I didn't believe this was real. Santos was like, have you heard about the mummies from Narnia? And I'm like, what? Aslan? How did he get involved? How did we get the mummy, the witch, and the wardrobe? The mummy was from the city of Narni. No awe. Okay, but where does the wardrobe come into it? Well, I guess the sarcophagus. I guess the sarcophagus would make a pretty good wardrobe. The sarcophagus can be like a, yeah, that's a pretty good like closet slash wardrobe thing. And if and I was lying about the town being <laughs> called Narnia. <laughs> oh, oh, God, you're such an Aslan. So n the <laughs> Narni mummy is a mummy preserved in the town hall, no joke, of, of <laughs> Narni, where at the beginning of the last century, it was purchased by an Italian collector. Uh, it's the mummy of a young female. From the Snow Queen. Yeah, it's the mummy of a young female. <laughs> And when she was investigated, autopsy revealed a package of bandages surrounding a hollow muscular organ with stripes similar to thin muscle bundles of the gastric walls. Sections from a fragment of this organ wrapped in linen were taken out of the mummy and rehydrated. And inside, in the world's grossest Cadbury egg, was a tiny little, you know, cestode, a uh, decomposing parasite of this tapeworm. You know, if, if you guys haven't heard the word cestode before, 
because uh, that definitely does sound it's dirty. It's a good insult. But <laughs> you sesto. <laughs> so we're we're talking about taxonomy right now. We're under Kingdom Animalia, and we're under the phylum of platyhelminths, Josh, which means flatworms. Okay, and underneath that, we're in the class of Cestoda, which are parasitic worms under that flatworm umbrella. So there's some flatworms that evolved away, you know, not to be parasitic. These guys, Cestoda, um, are all parasitic flatworms. Yeah, so just to show that flat these these helmets have been around for years and years and years. Now, by and large, ancient Egyptians really didn't eat much pork except for certain special festivals. And now you also may be thinking around this time, wait a minute, aren't there other people or groups of people from ancient times who say something about not eating pork? Who were they? Hmm. I'm sure it'll come to me. Uh, so during the Renaissance... Oh, Josh? Yes? Uh, happy Passover. Oh, thanks, Santosh. Why you bring that up? Oh, I, no reason. I just... Something that you oh, said. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, anyway, during the Renaissance, the causative agent was properly identified. Uh, you know, so they were doing autopsies on mummies, even from the Dome of the Basilica around the Renaissance, and found these same kinds of parasites. But it took until the late 19th century for confirmation that both the disease of parasites in little cysts and muscles and parasites in little cysts and brains were caused by the same little parasite. This first came up at least as speculation in the writings of, of all people, Aristotle. So I know I'm jumping all around here, but Aristotle did note that pigs could get this disease, and he noted the same kinds of little bubbles filled with dead worms on tongues of pigs, and it's thought that maybe Aristotle, who also suffered from occasional seizures, may have picked up this same infection while writing about animal illnesses. Oh, sure, sure. So this is kind of a good segue to talk about the fact that these diseases are what's called zoonotic. And not only that, but they're zoonotic with kind of complex life cycles, right? Aristotle first described these cysts, uh, the presence of cysts in the tongue and muscles of pigs in his history of animals. Later, Pliny named the adult form of the parasite Tayenia, and that's from the Greek meaning lace or strip, because that's what these worms look like, little segmented, like a little measuring tape. Oddly enough, because they're segmented, just like you say, often you do have uh, like tick marks <laughs> looking like you can... You can come through and just say, oh, one inch, two inch, three inch, like that. <laughs> yeah. Now, his his actual description is the pigs with soft meat have bladders that are like snowflakes hailing in the region of the thighs, neck, and loins. Very poetic, Aristotle. These are the areas yeah. <laughs> that are normally displayed. If there are few, meat is lean. If there are many, meat becomes soft and filled with fluid. The pigs suffering from this disease are easily recognized. The bladders can be seen on the inner surface of the tongue where they are abundant. So, you know, it's a very clear description for that time. I absolutely love these because this is what taught us a lot about the natural history of things when people would either hand draw a lot of the things that they would see 
you know, in tissue in a microscope, or they would vividly describe what they would discover. And then other people would be able to go on and, and either confirm or say, oh, you know what, I actually, I don't agree with what you see there. I see something else. Now, around this time, it's thought that the discovery of the fact that pigs can carry these parasites and really the lack of treatments available in the ancient world may have influenced both the Islamic and Jewish dietary laws restricting pork. And it makes just a ton of sense. There were also other diseases that you could get from, and a lot of these, Josh, were, I can't remember, not just pigs, but like cloven-hooved animals, right? Yeah. In our in our so, Medicine in the Bible episode, we actually talked about all the specific animals that you can't eat. The camel, because it's chewed, but doesn't have hoofs. Uh, the hare because it ruminates but doesn't have hoofs, and the pig because it has a split hoof but doesn't chew cud. Right. Yeah, and interestingly enough, though, you know, you do have amongst these related animals which can carry related types of infections and parasites, which can then transmit to the human being if you're not careful. So in actuality, you know, it might not have been a religious injunction per se, in terms of oh, some being declared that you shouldn't ought to eat this, but actually that it was a good idea to avoid eating the flesh of these animals because it was more likely to carry the, the infectious forms of these parasites and, and propagate them and then eventually get into your brain and cause some nonsense. Two Germans, um, Lukart and Wagner, were remembered for their work in parasitology, and they were the first to prove that this Taenia saginata, so the different, they started naming different kinds of tapeworms, and Taenia solium was named because it occurs only in swine and humans. Uh, solium, it's alone. It alone causes disease in in these two creatures, even though we are surrounded by many, many flatworms. Yeah, <laughs> we are. And so you can. You can find species-specific tapeworms for pretty much any mammal and then throughout fish as well. And this was the one that was able to jump species really from the animals that we farmed for livestock over to get to us. Um, Saginata is kind of interesting, Josh, because there have been human cases since documented with uh, Tania Saginata. But it's really, really interesting that they came up with this word solium for this because otherwise it would be something related to pigs, right? It would be suis or something. Right. Taking you on a very abbreviated version of this timeline, during the 19th century, German pathologists discovered and sort of named the disease, uh, although really they were rediscovering things that the ancient world had already known in some ways. Uh, Paracelsus created, uh, found a link between this parasite and infection in the brain. Ancient Egyptians knew about it getting into the muscles, as we know from the witch from Narnia. I'm sorry, the mummy from Narnia, uh, confirmation <laughs> that both, uh, during the 20th century, there started to be bouts of human sister sarcosis in non-endemic regions. And that taught us a lot about how the disease spreads, uh, which occurred through, and here's a few of the highlights, and then Santosh, you can go into this, uh, a large series of cases in the United Kingdom that returned after 
or that it returns with a bunch of troops coming back from India. And that sort of taught us that symptoms can occur years and years after infection. There was also a huge epidemic of epilepsy related to sister sarcosis, as we've talked about, not just in Julius Caesar, but in the Ekari people of Papua New Guinea. And this is after they got a large gift of pigs from Indonesia. So this this helped teach us about how fast endemic transmission can be established. And also the link you know, more evidence between the link of epilepsy and this disease. And finally, and most interestingly, the occurrence of neurosister sarcosis. Remember, a disease of pork tapeworms in the brain. An outbreak mm-hmm. occurred among members of an Orthodox Jewish community in New York City. The real interesting thing here is knowing that the Jewish community is famously not eating pork. Right, right. So, you know, that always comes up like, okay, either someone's cheating on their kosher, which is always possible, (laughs) or uh, much, much more likely you can uh, get the uh, eggs from animals other than pork. Well, this particular (laughs) case, this Orthodox Jewish community was found to be picking it up from the Latin American carriers working in their houses, which demonstrated the fact that transmission of cystic sarcosis does not require the presence of infected pigs. This was how we found out, Josh, that there's, you know, this fairly complex life cycle is that you could either have the tissue cysts, which are called uh, oncospheres, um, which are in the muscle of the pig, and then that can propagate into the next host that eats it. Or, and this is the where we found the presence of these and the transmission, you could get the eggs. And those could actually be in soil, on the ground, you know, if you didn't, for instance, wash your vegetables properly. Now, I mentioned before that this they got the name as it was thought to be the only disease-carrying worm. But I should be a little more specific. This was also the only flatworm discovered at the time. So its name didn't necessarily reflect just that it was the only worm that caused disease, but the idea that at least initially, humans could only host a single tapeworm that would cause disease, which means Tania solium in Latin translates to the lonely worm. (laughs) There are so many others right now, Josh. We got it. So yeah, yeah. We got um, my very, very favorite, Josh, which is fish dwarf tapeworm, which is, so we've got diphilobothrium that you can get from fish, um, which by the way, just to tie into this, is a disease called Jewish housewives disease. (laughs) And it's called that because when uh, Jewish mothers are making gefilte fish, they would be the first ones to just taste the raw fish to make sure it was fresh before they cooked it. And so they would be eating the uncooked flesh and they could get, uh, you know, the, the tapeworm that way, whereas the rest of the household would not get that. Um, but yeah, we got diphilodopterium, we have tinea, we can get tinea solium or saginata from beef. And then if you have poor hygiene, uh, in areas like that, you can get echinococcus, uh, echinococcus. And you'll get is, such an uh, echinococcus. <laughs> these can form cystic lesions in your liver, uh, and they're often found in places where uh, if you're a farmer, especially farming sheep, and you don't have uh, a good washing facilities for your hands, and hemina, uh, sorry, hemina, 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 hemina. 
<laughs> Hymenolepsis. At the time, you know, they thought that it was one tapeworm, but as we have started, well, frankly, finding out that we're eating more stuff, <laughs> we found more and more of these that can be pathogenic towards humans. Oh, and the fact that you mentioned we're eating it from more stuff, well, Germany figured that out too. Uh, researcher yeah. Kuchenmeister, mispronounced. Oh, oh God. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, please, God, let it that, let that be his real name. Uh, K-U-C-H-E-N-M-E-I-S-T-E-R. No, huh? Kuchenmeister. I don't think you're all that wrong. I think it's like Kuchenmeister. Kuchenmeister. I mean, Meister is master, so what's Kuchen? What's Kuchen, Meister? Good looking? It's cake. Oh my god, Kuchen is... <laughs> Kuchen is German for cake. So this guy is the cake master. Well, the cake master. <laughs> Fun with language on travel medicine. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to look that up. This was literally Dr. Cakemaster. <laughs> Who demonstrated, before you enjoy this too much, demonstrated yeah, that yeah. oral consumption of these tapeworms in pork could result in mm -hmm. human intestinal disease, and he proved it by feeding convicted men with a soup that had tapeworms from a recently slaughtered pig. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very not so funny horrible. now, is it? Oh, cake master, why? <laughs> why so, cake master? Must you be an unethical scientist? So there's two different versions of this pork tapeworm disease. So as we've been talking about, neurosister sarcosis is when it gets into the brain. But just briefly, Santosh, when it gets into the muscles, which is mm -hmm. one of the ones that we've actually been seeing more commonly, and especially in the United States, in the Southwest and other areas of hemi heavy emigration from endemic areas. So this is this disease is pretty prevalent anywhere that pigs are consumed in mass. So South America, Central America, Asia, and Africa, and it is working its way into regions where those people migrate. And given our proximity to Central and South America, a lot of it's getting into the southwestern United States. So what is teoneosis, tenacious D in the muscles? <laughs> <laughs> so uh you, i can actually start with the uh eggs or what we call the gravid proglottids <laughs> which essentially are broken off pieces of the tapeworm that are full of eggs and uh, you know unfortunately this is going to be a little gross for everybody the adult worm sitting in the, the small intestine, and this is, Josh, this is the kind of tapeworm that you think of like when people like lay out the tapeworm on a, on a table, uh, you know, on a, like a, in a histology, and you just say, this came out of a person kind of thing. And so one of those little segments on a female is called a proglottid. And those proglottids it, themselves can be full of eggs, or you can the uh, the eggs can be shed individually. So now we can go either pig or human. If it's a human, it's going to be you. You take it vegetable out of the ground, for instance, like a carrot, and you don't wash it off properly. Or um, you have the the pig that's going to consume it, and then that uh, uh, infection now goes into the pig, and then you eat the pig. Okay, uh, undercooked, 
And you have a little uh, early life stage of the worm, and it forms a little thing called an oncosphere. That oncosphere is the circular cystic thing that can be in the muscles. And it can be, of course, in the pigs, which is the tissue that you eat when you eat it. Or uh, it can, of course, end up, those those oncospheres can go up as cystocerci or cystocerci and end up in subcutaneous tissue, muscle, brain, eyes. Um, and it'll, it'll go there and stay or end. You'll also have eggs actually going through your system, hatching in your intestine, and you can get the big old adult worms growing up in your actual intestine and hanging out. And from that point, if they can live, if they can survive, they will continue to shed proglottids and eggs every time you poop. And so you get to be a vector. Uh, the little oncospheres is what we call them. The sister cerci uh, develop inside of those oncospheres in our muscles and in various other tissues, including the brain. So what are the symptoms when you start to develop these these cysts in your muscles? How would you know if you have this disease? So that's the weird thing, right? If you're an immunocompetent person, a lot of the time your immune system, it'll actually attack these oncospheres, right, Josh? And it'll just burn out the little cystocircus inside, and you're just going to be left with like a, a cyst there, and you might feel absolutely nothing, no symptoms whatsoever. And the vast majority of people who, well, I shouldn't say vast, but the majority of people who have cystocercosis don't know. They just have that thing sitting in the tissue. If it's in the subcutaneous area, uh, they're microscopic, so you won't even feel like a bump or anything like that. Um, but if you have enough of a burden of these, right, it can cause inflammation around the area where it's being attacked. So you could get in your muscles, you can get like aches and pains, right? Like um, almost like you're sore, like you've worked out, but it, it sticks around for a while. And again, if your immune system is strong enough, though, that inflammation will kind of burn out as it kills those cystocerci in your muscle. But as you know, Josh, you cannot just go leaving an inflamed thing which turns into a cyst and just let it hang out in certain parts of the brain and have no consequences. <laughs> um, a lot of the time you'll have consequences, you know, it will leave maybe a, uh, what we call an epileptogenic focus. So that little cyst that's pressing there on just the right part of the brain It'll uh, mess with the electricals right then and there, and it can be a focus for the start of a seizure. Not every time. Again, Josh, there are people who have cystocerci, you know, inadvertently or, you know, accidentally found on a CT scan, and say, oh, I don't have any symptoms. I wonder if, this is probably a stretch, and I have not researched this, I'm just thinking out loud. If the name Sister Circosis has anything to do with uh, the tale of the Odyssey, Odysseus and the witch Circe, who turned sailors oh. into pigs and then, oh. and then ate them. Oh, it really could be. So the cyst is easy, right? It's a, it's a cyst. But where did it come that they're Sister Circus or Sister Circe? I wonder. Huh? It's, it's 
That's pretty close, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, as you mentioned, when the cysts yeah. form in the muscles, they cause things like abdominal pain or the live tapeworms can cause uh, flatulence and diarrhea because you're expelling the little extra bits of egg-filled worms to pass on to the next host. But in <laughs> in the brain, you get things, as Santos said, like seizures, headaches, uh, weaknesses, almost you know, in some ways could be like stroke-like symptoms, could be seizures, could be visual disturbances. And yeah, it's like a teeny tiny tumor. Yeah. So in any, in a modern day setting, any patient coming from an endemic area who has these kinds of symptoms, because cysts can lodge in multiple locations, it's worth working up. And we learned this from that case in the Orthodox Jewish community, where a lot of their Latin American housekeepers and assistants around the home we're carrying this because, as I believe you had mentioned also, Santosh, this is not necessarily a fatal disease. And we've said before, you can carry around these cysts for years with no ill effects. Doesn't mean you want to have them, but that it doesn't yeah. <laughs> immediately start becoming a problem. So what would make you think you need to check somebody for it? And how do we diagnose it? So the this was the case that I actually got from my emergency room physician mentor um, when I was in medical school. And it was really cool. The idea was that all you had was a person who brought a um, an obtunded young person into the ER with the only clue that they had fallen very suddenly and they were brought in and both the patient and the person who were bringing them in did not speak fluent English. And you you could actually deductively kind of scroll through and say, oh, well, okay, they, they don't speak English. More than likely then, the second most common uh, language that you're going to see here in the United States is Spanish. So they're probably from south of the border. It's a young person. A lot of the time, young people just don't fall off in the middle of the street like our, you know, it's not our like 75-year-old, right? <laughs> just bam. So less likely to be the heart, less likely to be the lung. Relatively young, and it seems like it was very sudden. Like it, you know, it's something that's not predicted, meaning that, you know, this person doesn't have a medic alert bracelet or anything saying that they have epilepsy or something like that. So you can actually say, oh, seizure is the most likely thing. They're Spanish speaking, they're south of the border. There's a decent chance that what this person has is neurocysticercosis. And it may have been a cyst, Josh, that they recently acquired and that went into the brain, or it could have been one that they've had for a year, more than a year. Um, and just right now, for one reason or another, it irritated the brain and causes a seizure. So new onset seizures is one of the most common reasons that we look for teneosolium. Okay. We also, if we find an unexplainable neurological deficit, meaning like weakness of an arm or a leg or, uh, you know, something that almost looks like a stroke kind of thing, um, headaches a little bit less so because often there isn't enough of a, a cyst burden in the brain to cause that much pressure. But a certain type of headache, which is caused by hydrocephalus, Josh, where the cerebrospinal fluid stops circulating and it actually backs up and you'll get high pressure in the head. That one, you also, if you see uh, any 
signs and symptoms of hydrocephalus, we look for this for tinea solium or for neurocystosarcosis. So that's why we look for it. The easiest way we diagnose today in this day and age is actually by imaging. And neuroimaging is usually done initially by computer tomography or CT scan. And it's usually followed up in in place like the United States with something like MRI or magnetic resonance imaging. You can also aspirate a cyst for... Uh to get some of that worm out. And if you don't have access, let's say you're in the developing world and you don't have access to an MRI or a fancy lab, you can also at least begin to be clued in by seeing a special kind of cell in the blood known as an eosinophil. It's like our uh, body's parasite detectors. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, yeah, yeah. So eosinophils, IgE, histamine, this entire branch of our immune system, it, it didn't evolve just to give us like, you know, Hey, fever, Josh. <laughs> it's actually a long evolved arm of our immune system, which is actually dedicated to fighting helmets. Yeah. So uh, we have three kinds of ways, depending on what medical resources you have available, to look for these parasites once we suspect them. Now, yeah. And by the way, a lot of people, if you find it in the brain, right, Josh? A lot of people. If it's in a place where you can't remove it, you have a characteristic look on CT or MRI and you stop there. Ultimately, what you want to do is, you know, actually see it histologically if you can. So um, an actual tissue section where you can visualize it. Um, or just like you said, if you aspirate the um, the cyst, sometimes you can find it. Although often you know, by the time that you find the cyst and it's called this cause the seizure or whatever it is, a lot of the time, Josh, that cystocircus is actually dead in there. The immune system's burned it out and killed it. Yeah. So treating the disease when it doesn't involve the nervous system usually is not required. The treatment varies depending on how severe the clinical presentation is. So if it's just in a supporting area system, it's, it's causing discomfort or pain, but not directly threatening you with seizure, things like that, you'll be given albendazole, which is it bends the worms. That's how we learned it in med school. <laughs> it's true. It's a paralytic for the worm. Um, so you get albendazole, and that kind of kills or paralyzes the worm, so it, it can slide on out of your system. And this is given with mm -hmm. steroids to help limit the swelling as well as some of the immune response, as well as anti-epileptic medications to prevent seizures. Now, if you have cysts buried deep in the muscle or in the eye, those generally require surgical intervention. I'll, I'll add one thing, Josh, that we will give if there's active inflammation around the cyst at the time, uh, meaning that your immune system's trying to attack that cyst. It sounds kind of paradoxical, but we'll give the albendazole to kill that little worm inside of the cyst so that the cyst becomes dormant and dead, but we'll also give steroids alongside it, so prednisone or something like that, in order to actually stop the inflammatory response because, unfortunately, part of the enemy here is actually our immune system, our own immune system sometimes you know, propagating the seizure or the inflammation in the brain. So now that you kind of have an idea of how we treat the disease and how it is 
you know, again, very endemic. Lots of people are walking around with versions of this, depending on where in the world they have come from. So how do you prevent it? Let's say, you know, you, you're in an endemic area. What do you want to do? Well, mostly you want to cook your food. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, it sounds, yeah. I know it sounds obvious. <laughs> And we talked about this when we talked about uh, my parasite that I work on, which is Toxoplasma. Um, it is a lot of the time, just a good amount of heat and smoke can kill this. And Josh, a lot of the reason why this propagates sometime is because around there, like if you're getting like the authentic food, if you go to particular areas, is the way to cook it is actually not hot enough to kill off the cysts in the the pig's muscle tissue, but they want it that way. It's supposed to be somewhat rare. Yeah. So in theory, this disease could be totally eradicated as the only known reservoirs are humans and swine. And I'll get into some fun genetic facts in a moment, but (laughs) the separation of pigs from human feces by best sentence ever, confining them in enclosed piggeries. <laughs> I love, yeah, yeah. So, uh, of course, you know, the, the worm is in the, the muscle tissue if you eat the meat, but they're also pooping out the uh, the eggs from the adult worms that are sitting in their intestine. Yeah. So in Western European countries after World War II, the pig industry developed really rapidly and most pigs were housed. This separated them from being around humans, so there wasn't a lot of chance for cross-contamination. And that's how you largely eliminated pig sister sarcosis from the region. Remember how earlier I talked about that huge uh, bunch of series of cases in the UK? Well, that all happens when the return of troops stationed in India. But by the time World War II ran around, again, humans and pigs no longer in similar living conditions, so it wasn't transmitted. I I will say, can I add in about the specifics of the meat cooking, if anybody's interested? Sure. Whole cuts of meat, you've got to get it up to 145 degrees Fahrenheit. All right. And you need to rest the meat, which means keep it at that temperature for at least three minutes before carving or consuming. And ground meat is a little bit tougher because you've got nooks and crannies and stuff that you want to get it up to at least 160 degrees Fahrenheit, no matter how you're cooking it. And that should kill off those little wormy worms. Now, Santosh, earlier you mentioned how there were some thoughts that we picked up this infection or that became a zoonosis originally from domesticated animals. Uh, I thought so, although it would make sense. I think you're going to surprise me if they were out in the wild first. Yeah, in fact, a 2001 paper published by Eric Hoberg and collaborators looked at the origins of the Taenia tapeworms in humans based on genetic analysis of a whole bunch of tapeworm species. And they found that the ones that we uh, get infected with are most closely related to lions and hyenas. See? Narnia. Yeah. <laughs> now, oh, I thought now, I thought you were going to go with Lion King, but that's, that's a good one, too. <laughs> the thought... I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> everything the light touches. <laughs> yeah. 
is part of our kingdom. But Papa, what about where the sun don't shine? <laughs> That's uh, tapeworms get in there, son. Hyenas. That's a day. You must never go there. <laughs> I'm sorry. So uh, the thought is that when humans started basically out-competing prey at like out competing lions and hyenas for prey animals like we were going up because the the reproducing form lives in carnivores but the infectious dormant form lives in herbivores or you know prey animals for lions and humans so when we started stealing food from lions we started getting diseases that they had been passing to their food Based on genetic analysis, it looks like two tapeworms independently made the jump to humans. The ancestor of T. solium, which is the one that came from lions, and a single parent species of T. saginata and T. asiatica, and those came more from hyenas, because hyenas are more dangerous than lions, but easier to repel in food preference. So the thought is that worm-carrying human populations may have migrated out of Africa, leading to the separation of parasite populations that evolved into the two species, with cattle becoming an intermediate host in T. saginata and pigs in T. asiatica. So fun little genetics. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So we, <laughs> we brought it in ourselves out to the piggies and the cowies. Yeah, we stole it from lions. Then we right. le- we stole it from lions and hyenas. Then we left Africa yeah. and we had our yeah. cows and pigs along and we passed it to them and now we've just in this <laughs> giant game of worm tag. <laughs> oh, oh, I feel so horrible. Oh, I'm sorry cows and pigs. So more I mean that's that's the working theory now that and that's that's very fair it is difficult to get you know kind of 100% certainty when we're tracing ancestries like this over tens of thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of years but it makes sense now we've kind of talked about prevention and diagnosis and all the treatments i'm just going to end with a fun little engineering patent for an early version of treatment hey in september 1856, a physician called uh-huh. J. Gotham wrote to the <laughs> medical wrote to the medical and surgical reporter with news of an exciting new breakthrough treatment, a tapeworm trap. <laughs> um, when he, uh, you know, trapped the tapeworm, did he like all of a sudden go, "You're mine, Skull. <laughs> I'm Batman." <laughs> This is not the trap you need, but the trap you deserve. (laughs) Oh, that was so much better than my growly Christian Bale voice. Awesome, Josh. (laughs) However, this trap, and I'll I'll include a link in the show notes, it it did not work. But the original patent still exists. It was filed by Alpheus Myers, a doctor from Logansport, Indiana, and... This guy, clever in one sense, he patented not just the device, but the operation for which it was designed, ensuring he could be the only person in the country allowed to use it, which sounds sounds smart, but it's not a particularly clever thing to do if you want to sell your invention to lots of other people. (laughs) Yeah, in that case, you just have to, somehow you have to attract a bunch of tapeworm-having people to come to your house. So listen to his 
ridiculous cartoonish version of an EGD for tapeworms. Sure, okay. Go the ahead. tapeworm trap is a very small hollow tube of gold arranged to contain a small piece of cheese for bait. The patient, after a fast of four or five days, is ordered to swallow the trap with a string attached, and it is claimed by the inventor that after such a long fast, the worm comes up into the stomach, will greedily seize the cheese, be caught in the trap, and can then be fished out. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is enticing the worm to come with, out with yeah. cheese. Yeah, <laughs> cuz we all know that tapeworms love cheese. <laughs> now, here's there's a few problems with this. One, tapeworms live in the intestines and are unlikely to venture into the stomach where the acidic conditions would rapidly prove fatal. Oh. Second, cheese. Oh. Uh <laughs> third, the cord is fastened to some conspicuous place around the patient who is then kind of left to sit there with this dangling in them from 6 to 12 hours. And EGD takes about 30 minutes. This person wants you to give yourself a capsule endoscopy, swallowing a golden tube for 6 to 12 hours, and after the worm seizes the cheese, you then get to start pulling at the cord slowly. So the journal correspondent has a little bit of a snark and shade that they throw over this description. And he says, here's the review of the patent. Imagine to yourself the satisfaction with which a man could thus sit down and fish in his own room without even an accompanying tub of water. Oh, oh, gross. Come on. This shouldn't be a hobby. God damn it. Oh. The patience and complacency with which after waiting from 6 to 12 hours for a nibble, he could then play his prisoner some more before landing him. Does not Mr. Alpheus Myers have good reason to believe that the shade of Isaac Walton, some fishing guy, looks down upon him in anger for this innovation upon the piscatorial arts? <laughs> as, as if that wasn't enough? Uh... <laughs> In its coverage of this patent, Scientific American included an artist's impression of this recreation, and it looks, well, nightmare-inducing. <laughs> oh, what kind of nonsense? But Dr. Okay. Gotham basically took the patent office to task, saying, it's bad enough that Alpheus Myers would be allowed to do this, but the office of our government, who would take money from a man for so gross an absurdity as this, there are physicians connected with the patent office, men whose names stand before the country, and how they or the commissioner could have allowed the seal of office to be affixed to such a document for such a monstrously ridiculous contrivance surpasses all comprehension. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He then goes on to talk about how he cured a huge tapeworm 56 inches long by our final fact of the night, an infusion of pumpkin seed. Oh, well, no. Well, well, this sounds a little wooey. Okay. But I will tell you that then and now, tapeworms are even as far as ancient Egypt and even as recently as today, are treated with curcubicetas, the pumpkin seeds, the tiny little pepitas, because they do have a few metabolic compounds that have been shown to act similarly, although much less effectively, than albendazole and paralyze the worms. So 
Uh, Occasionally, you'll see in veterinary journals, and we'll pull our vet in for this later, feeding dogs pumpkin seeds or dogs will eat pumpkin seeds when they are trying to expel parasites. Oh, that's really, really neat. Okay, I I didn't, I mean, I was ready to just chalk it up, but it makes sense. I mean, we actually have covered several instances where civilizations of various kinds, before there was any kind of antibiotics or anything, used natural compounds in order to combat endemic infections like this. So, okay, cool. Makes sense. So uh, a quick journey through the ages for a plague that is still present, not necessarily deadly for most people, but one that should not make continue in its status as a neglected tropical disease, to throw a, one of Santosh's buzzwords out there. Yeah, yeah. So we have this list, and it is they're called neglected tropical diseases. They're specifically there in order to actually pull attention back to these things. They are diseases that affect a lot of people, often in poor and remote areas, and they're often not thought of as being necessarily like deadly, but they will cause significant. Uh, disability and problems kind of societally overall if they're allowed to propagate. And they're not given the kind of money and resources that a lot of the other very severe tropical diseases are, as a, for instance, malaria. So yeah, it, it falls into that category. So that's it for this week's Around the World in 80 Plagues. Beep, beep. <laughs> ah, gotcha. Well, Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help and patience from Dr. Santosh and friends. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Check them out, you guys. There's some fun picks in there. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, and especially now that vaccines are really rolling out at pace, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shots. And once you've done all those things and you have a chance to find what country is accepting us, happy travels. Bye, everybody. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.